Well, for those of you that are regular attenders, you know the second that you see me doing the announcements, that means that, uh, that Pastor Chris isn't here. <laughs> and um, oh, this morning, the Schmidt family is up in Tennessee, and they're actually celebrating Ryan's 21st birthday. Can you believe he's 21? Yeah, holy moly. And uh, so we certainly lift uh, Ryan up in prayer. We're so thankful for uh, that they had the opportunity to go up there and celebrate with him. And uh, when you see this fellow standing right here, you know that you're in for a real treat. Am I right? Please welcome Dr. Reverend Richard Schmidt. It's an obstacle for us to get. Yeah, it is. It is. Thank you, John. <sighs> How y'all doing? Good, good, good. Uh, you know what? After 40 years of doing this, you'd think I wouldn't be anxious about it, but I am. You can, you can ask my wife. She's down there praying for me right now. Her, her, her wonderful words to me before I got up to come up here, she said, don't mess up. My reputation's on the line. So, anyhow, Malcolm, you said there was vodka in this? Okay. Mm. Of course, I just ingested a piece of ice. Bear with me while it melts. Great song! Love, love that song. I was looking at the cover of the, the day he wore my crown and uh, remembering when, when Judy and I would sing that with our choir. How many of you all have sung that song before? I see, yeah, I thought I heard some people back out there singing. Why aren't you up here? <laughs> one, one of you is, but aha, see, they're pointing at each other saying, you belong up there. Yeah, Chris and Tony, Chris and Tony, like John said, are up in uh, Murfreesboro, and uh, so Chris asked me to fill in, which causes me great concern about his wisdom at times. <laughs> but but we we do enjoy this time to be with you in this particular setting. Most of the time, I love sitting out there, and if Chris will pause. At just the right moment in his message, I can fit in a zinger. <laughs> but he doesn't, he doesn't always do that. I want to tell you a story about a pastor of a church who the, the church was, was involved in a building project. Um, you all know anything about that? <laughs> and... Um, he was wondering the best way to go ahead and raise money for the building project. So he got up in front of the congregation a particular Sunday morning and he said, Folks, I have three sermons prepared. The, the first one is a $1,000 sermon. And it lasts 10 minutes. The second one is a $50 sermon, and it lasts for an hour. The third one, he said, 
is a $5 sermon, and it lasts for a full two hours. Now I'll ask the ushers to come forward, and we'll take up the offering, (laughs) and we'll see which one you get. Well, I want to tell you, I have three sermons also. The first one is the one that I have worked on and done my best to, 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 to get to where I think it needs to be. The second one is the one you're about to hear. <laughs> and the third one is the one that Judy's going to have to listen to on our drive back up to Dade City this afternoon because that's going to be the one I probably should have given. Over the years when I have had ample time to do the study necessary, I usually felt pretty good about the end product. But sometimes Sunday came right after Monday. (laughs) And as I stood in front of my friends and and congregation, I, I realized that I hadn't really prepared as well as I had thought I had. And I could tell that. Because after about five minutes into the message, there was this glazed look. <laughs> and and uh, I, I, I knew that I, I wasn't where I needed to be in my message. And that's when I realized that my sermon, which I had hardly begun, instead of being a gem, was a lump of coal. That's called an oh-no moment. We've all had oh-no moments. Have you ever hit the delete key on the keyboard when, when you shouldn't have? Remember, remember automobiles that use keys in the ignition? Some of you still have those kind. And, and one day you got out of the car and slammed the door. And as the door closed, you looked in, and there were the keys laughing at you as they dangled from the ignition. That's an oh-no moment. And you prayed, oh, Lord, please tell me I didn't hit the, the automatic lock. And in that split second, you realized you did. And here comes the next oh-no moment. It occurs when you realize that you're Spare set of keys is at home, miles away, sitting next to your cell phone. (laughs) Well, here's my oh no moment. It's simply this. Why in the world, Richard, Did you ever choose a passage from the third chapter of John's gospel for your message? These folks, you folks, have heard 99 zillion messages on Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus, and 99.9% of them are better than this one. What was I thinking? And then I got to, got to thinking about, about sermons and, and why they work or don't work. Sometimes I, I, I realize that, that a sermon didn't work because I didn't communicate very well. 
I, I didn't hit the nail on the head. Sometimes it's because the message didn't meet the needs of the congregation. But here's what's worse. When a sermon connects, and I have no idea why. <laughs> One week, Sunday came way too early. I labored through three services. And because God is merciful, the morning finally ended. And as I prepared to, to greet the folks as they left the sanctuary, I was rehearsing my excuses. Well, everybody has an off day now and then. Uh, don't, don't give up on me. Come back next week. I'll, I'll do better. And, and as, I, as I prepared my apologies in, in my head, a fellow came up to me and he grabbed my hand. But with tears streaming down his cheeks, he said to me, Richard, you have no idea what those words meant to me. And following on his heels was his wife, who said, I'm facing surgery on Tuesday. After that message, I can deal with anything. You know, sometimes I think I envy stage actors. They get to proclaim and, and, and speak somebody else's words. Oh, I, I know it's not easy to memorize all those words and, and to play off one another at just the right moment. You know, you can always tell when you go to a play when somebody doesn't come in like they're supposed to. There's that awkward silence. There's those looks between the, between the actors, and you can always tell when they've worked together for a long time because they pick that up and move right on almost as if, as if nothing ever happened. But, but they, they can turn right around and, and the very next day, the very next time, say the same things and do the same things all over again. Preaching doesn't work like that. It, no, it, it doesn't. No one has ever come to me or any other pastor. Do we have some other pastors here this morning? Yeah, okay. Has anybody ever come to you after the sermon, after the worship service on Sunday and said, that was a great sermon. Preach it again next week. <laughs> no, me neither. <laughs> Never. Never. See, preaching doesn't work like that. The words, the, the words flow out of my mouth, across the tops of your head. They crash into the back wall, and they sink, and they fade. They're just words. But no, they're more than that. It's just preaching. No, it's more than that. It's mystery. And the more I understand how it works, the less I understand why it works. So the text for this morning is in the third chapter of John. It's not going to be up on the screen because I'm not going to read it to you from the scripture text. I'm going to read it to you from the RSCV version of the Bible. That's the Richard Schmidt condensed <laughs> version. Version. 
here's, here's what happens. Nicodemus says to Jesus, teacher, we've seen you do some pretty nifty things, like changing ice water into Mogan David at that wedding reception. You know, you really ought to be careful about doing things like that. The local winemakers union is all up in arms. And they have made a complaint about you, and they're a very influential group. But Jesus, I, I think, Nicodemus says, I, I think I understand most of what you've been saying, but what I want to know is this. How do I get into the kingdom of God? How do I do it? How do I get whatever it is that you've got. You see, the more Nicodemus thought he knew, the less he understood. And you couldn't tell it by, by looking at him. He, he had the right stuff. He looked good. He said the right things. He, he, outwardly, he was a picture of confidence. The first words out of his mouth tell us this. Rabbi, he said, we know. We know, and you can see what he's doing. He's setting Jesus up for a teacher-to-teacher -teacher conversation. Let's have, a, let's have a heart-to-heart a, a -heart discussion here, Jesus. We know. Well, what is it that Nicodemus thinks he knows? Well, he thinks he knows how God works. He thinks he's got all that figured out. And then he also thinks he knows how God doesn't work. But perhaps something Jesus said or something Jesus did has caused him to question all the things he thinks he understands. And so he goes and he asks Jesus that question. Now John's gospel portrays Nicodemus as a sincere and devout man who obeys the law, exercises responsible leadership in his community, but his faith is tentative, his vision is blurred, and he can't see things as they really are. And so he asks Jesus for help. What do I have to do, he says, to find the kingdom of God? Now here's where the rubber meets the road, folks. So, so listen slowly. Nicodemus thought the person does the work. Got it? Jesus said, no, God does the work. Nicodemus thought it was, if you'll excuse the use of a phrase we've heard a lot of lately, Nicodemus thought it was a quid pro quo. <laughs> Jesus said it's a gift. Nicodemus thought it was his job to earn it. Jesus said, your job, Nicodemus, is to accept it. Now, most religions can be placed in one of two camps. Legalism or grace. 
Either we do it or God does it. Salvation is either a wage earned based on our deeds or it's a gift given based on what Christ has done. It's either or, beloved. It cannot be both and. You see, a legalist believes that the supreme motivating force behind salvation is the individual. If you look right, if you act right, if you speak right, if you belong to the right group, you'll be saved. The responsibility doesn't lie with God. It lies with you. But what's the result? Well, if you look closely, you'll see that the outside sparkles, the talk sounds right, the walk looks great, but, but talk is cheap and looks are deceiving. And if you look closer, you'll see that the legalist is lacking joy. And what you find in place of joy is fear. Fear that you won't do enough. Arrogance that you have done more than your share. More than what was required. And worry that you've made a mistake. Legalism is a dark world. Now this passage in John's Gospel is said to be an essential text for understanding the Christian faith. But sometimes it gets taught the way Nicodemus misunderstood it and not the way Jesus explained it. The emphasis gets placed on being born again. And, and that's what started Nicodemus off on those questions. How, how, can, how can that be? How can a person be born when he is old and so forth? But the emphasis needs to be on, as the texts in some translations say, Jesus said, being born from above. That is being born through the presence of God's Holy Spirit. You must be born from above, Jesus said. And, and by the way, the, uh, uh, the you here is plural. What, what Jesus most likely said was, y'all must be born from above. I, I mean, he was from southern Galilee. Nicodemus didn't understand, but Jesus didn't belittle him for it. In fact, Jesus embraced his misunderstanding. He helped Nicodemus reach a level of perfection that would be realized and bear fruit after the crucifixion. But don't be too hard on Nicodemus. Now, we misunderstand too. We, we tend to be a nation of high achievers, do-it-yourselfers. Tell me what I have to do and I'll pull myself up on my bootstraps. Is there a Christianity for dummies that I can read that'll take me through it step by step? Is there a website with illustrated uh, illustrations rather uh, to make it easy? I first began playing clarinet in second grade, second grade, you remember those metal instruments came in a case that long? You opened it up, the moths flew out. <laughs> the smell was just 
overpowering from years and years of use. Second grade. In third grade, my teacher's name was Mrs. Stacy. Mrs. Stacy came over on the ark. One, one afternoon, or one, one lunch period, I'm out on the playground playing, and she comes out and she grabs me off the playground and brings me in and sits me down in my seat in our third grade classroom. Why, you ask? Because, she said, I was playing too hard. Can anybody communicate that to an an eight-year-old boy? How do you play too hard? So she sat me down in my seat right next to my clarinet. I took it out. I began to play. Do you know what sounds emanate from a clarinet when you're in the third grade? (laughs) Squeaks and squawks. She never took me off the playground after that. (laughs) I was living out what an an eight-year-old boy was supposed to live out, to play. And I want to tell you that even though it wasn't easy learning to play the clarinet. In, in, fact, in, in fact, my first band book was titled Easy Steps to the Band. Anybody ever have that particular band book? Easy? It wasn't easy. It wasn't easy. But living out our Christian faith isn't easy either. And I've graduated from the clarinet to play the bass clarinet, and I've done that all these years, and Judy and I play in a band up in in Newport, Ritchie, have a great time doing that. But it wasn't easy, and, and it still isn't. And living our Christian faith isn't easy. It takes commitment and sacrifice and dedication. Some weeks ago, this space up here was packed with Christmas gifts for children who accept for the sacrifice of time and talent and, and, and finances would not have had very much, if anything, to open on Christmas morning. I say that because of what this congregation does for others, not just at Christmas time, but all the year through, is pure grace pure grace, and it flies in the face of the secular me-first attitude that we see so prevalent today. You've heard the adage, it's not whether you win or lose, but how you play the game. I wonder if anybody really believes that anymore. I wonder if our politicians do. (laughs) Well, apparently some kids did. This story supposedly took place in Brooklyn, New York. A father spoke at a fundraising banquet at the Cush School. The Cush School 
caters to learning disabled or less abled children. And after he extolled the school and its, its staff, he, he asked this question. Where is the perfection in my son, Shea? Everything that God does is done with perfection, but my child cannot understand things as other children do. Where is God's perfection? And he answered his question by saying, I believe that when a child like Shea is born into this world, the perfection God seeks... The perfection God seeks is the way in which people react to him. And then he went on to tell the assembled folks the fact that his son attends the Cush school during the week, but on Sundays he attends a yeshiva, a Torah school. And and one day, one Sunday, uh, his dad and Shea were walking to the yeshiva, and Shea's classmates were out playing baseball. Shea looked at his dad and said, do you think you could get me into the game? His dad knew that Shea was no athlete with his conditions that he had. He probably had never played a game of baseball, but his dad knew that if, if Shea could get involved, it would, it would help so much for him in feeling like he belonged. So his dad went up to one of the boys on the field and said, do you think my son could play? And the boy said, well, it's the top of the eighth inning. We're losing by six runs, but we'll see if if we can get him in next inning and he can be on our team. And his dad was so excited and Shea was so excited. They gave him a glove. They pointed him to the outfield. The bottom of the the eighth inning, Shea's team scored a few runs. The top of the ninth, the other team didn't score any runs. And now it's the bottom of the, the ninth. Shea's team is behind by... By three runs, two outs, the bases are loaded, the tying run at first, and guess who is up? Shea's dad didn't know whether or not they would even uh, let him bat, but they did, and it was obvious from the way he, the way Shea walked up to the plate and stood with the bat, that he had no idea how to even hold it properly. And, and the, pitcher, the pitcher moved in because he realized the circumstances, and he moved in close and he, he lobbed the ball. You got to pretend those are baseballs. <laughs> he lobbed the ball to Shea, hoping that he could maybe hit it, and of course he missed it by a mile. One of Shea's teammates came up and stood behind him and and helped him hold the bat. The pitcher moved in even closer and lobbed the ball. They made contact. The ball dribbled to the pitcher. All he had to do was pick it up, throw it to first. The game would be over. Shea's team would have lost. 
Instead, the pitcher fielded the ball, picked it up, and threw it over the first baseman's head into right field. Run to first, Shea, run to first. Shea had never played a game of baseball, much less run the first, but he knew what he was supposed to do, and he kind of slowly made his way down the first baseline. The, the right fielder could have taken that ball and thrown him out at first, but he didn't. Instead, the right fielder took the ball and he threw it over the third baseman's head. Run the second, Shea. And they pointed him in the right direction. When he got to second base, the opposing shortstop turned him toward third. Run, Shea, run. And now everybody was screaming. Shea hit third base. They aimed him towards home. And now the boys from both teams are running alongside of him, screaming, run home, Shea, run home. And Shea did. Stepped on home plate. And his teammates hoisted him on his shoulders. Shea had hit a grand slam home run and helped his team win the game. And Shea's father, in relating that incident to the folks assembled, said, those boys that day reached their level of perfection. They showed that it is not only those who are talented who should be recognized, but those also who have less talent. Because they too have feelings and emotions and a great desire to feel important. This Christmas, that's exactly what you did for boys and girls whose names you probably will never know and you probably will never meet, you helped them feel important. Well, clock says 9.02. <laughs> and that's about it for me. George Burns, George Burns is credited with having said, the secret to a good sermon is to have a good beginning, to have a good ending, and to get them as close together as you can. <laughs> But what I want you to realize this morning is that a sermon is as much a gift to the preacher as it is to the congregation. I cannot begin to tell you how it gladdens Judy's heart and my heart to hear the nice things you say about Chris and Tony and the kids. And when Chris stands up here and and delivers a message in his own very, very unique and wonderful way. It is as much a gift to him as it is a gift to you. It's a gift called grace. And, and if you're in worship when a cool, refreshing 
breeze from the Holy Spirit ripples through the congregation. It's a wonderful gift for everyone. Where did it come from? Where is it going? Who knows? Not me. The more I know, the more I know, (laughs) the less I understand. It's mysterious. It's amazing. It's grace. Let's pray. Loving Lord, for your gift of grace to us this morning, help us to accept it. Help us to know, as Jesus said to Nicodemus, it's a gift. You don't work for it. You're blessed by it when you accept it. Bless this wonderful congregation, Lord, and all the ministries that it undertakes. For we ask it in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.